You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. You know, there have been a lot of cool things that have happened to me since I started the show and eventually got up and running and attracted some modest amount of an audience and success and whatever. And I'm still not at all a, a big fish or anything like that. I'm, I'm a little fish in a great big pond of podcasting still, even history podcasting. Great big great big pond and I'm still a fairly small fish but at least I'm I guess I've graduated from being a guppy but anyway one of the coolest things has been to get a chance to talk to a lot of people that I really respect including other podcasters as well as some authors historians etc it's been a really cool thing to do and there's still some people on my list for sure that I do want to eventually talk to and we'll see how many, if any of them, pan out. But what a great surprise it was over the past uh, week or two to be able to talk to one of my favorite fiction authors, Mike Resnick, who is in many ways very much a living legend, particularly in the sci-fi realm, although he's written in other genres as well. But I think he's most well known for his sci-fi, and I think that's the bulk of his work numerically. And it definitely seems to be his first love in terms of genre. And if you're not familiar with Mike Resnick and his work, you really need to go check out some of his books as soon as you can. If you're at all into kind of sci-fi and fantasy and that sort of thing, you really need to check him out. And not only is he a, just a great author, and as we found out, a super nice dude, but also, if you're at all of a libertarian leaning in any flavor, you really should check out his work as well, because there's a streak of that running through a lot of his work. And it's not clunky and didactic or anything like that. It's not as artificial as some other libertarian-leaning authors. It's much more integrated into actual good stories and interesting characters and all that sort of stuff. So it's actually of a good literary quality. And I think you can dig Mike Resnick's work even if you're not of a libertarian mind, but I think he deserves to be better known amongst the sorts of people who might be listeners to this show. So aside from just the fact that it was really cool to be able to talk to him, I'm also very happy to hopefully try and share him and his work with an audience that probably will be very receptive to a lot of it. So what happened was, um, you may know if you've been keeping up with DHP episodes, that on our previous episode, myself and Joshua of the Dusty Den podcast did a joint crossover episode in which we kind of reviewed and discussed Santiago, which is probably Mike Resnick's best-known work, and certainly the first one I encountered of him. And then not long after that episode was published, I got contacted by a DHP listener named Jake, and Jake put me in touch with Mike Resnick, and Mike was very kind to agree to do an interview jointly with myself and Joshua, and so that is the genesis of this episode. It's something a little different. I think it's the first time I've ever had a fiction author as a guest, but I think you'll really enjoy it. 
So if you're not already familiar with Mike Resnick's work, I urge you to check it out. And also, of course, check out the Dusty Den podcast as well. Big, big thank yous to Jake for putting us in touch with Mike. And of course, big thank yous to Mike for um, sparing some of his time away from his prolific writing to chat with a couple of podcasters. Also, I have good news on kind of a personal front, but it also affects the podcast in a positive way, which is my semester from hell, which I was having this semester for a variety of reasons. I was way overloaded at work with just tons of stuff through no fault of my own that I had to do beyond my normal teaching duties. I mean, it was it was additional teaching-related duties, let's put it that way, but it was absolutely stressing me out, tiring me out. It was it was really tough and it's over. This week I finished off the semester from hell and I am looking forward to simultaneously relaxing and recuperating over Christmas break and also working on some DHP related stuff. Got some additional episodes in the works for after this one, including at least one more interview show that I've already recorded with David Ramsey Steele, author of the book Orwell, Your Orwell, a worldview on the slab about George Orwell's beliefs and ideologies. And that one's already been recorded and will probably be released in a matter of days after this one is released. And then I also have some solo history kind of narrative shows that are in various stages of planning and preparation and research. So stay tuned for all that. Also, one more thing. Some Patreon thank yous I have to give out as well. Big thanks to Mike, Ed, Ted, and David. Thank you all very much for stepping up to help support this show and keep it going and growing via patreon.com slash profcj. And of course, reminder to everybody else that if you sign up for just five bucks a month over there, you will get access to exclusive bonus DHP episodes that are available there and nowhere else. And you will also get early access to ad-free DHP episodes. You get them earlier than Gen Pop, and there won't be any ads now. You may be thinking, well, but you don't run ads on your podcast. And the answer is, I probably am going to be doing so soon. So anyway, another bonus, early ad-free regular DHP episodes. And in addition to that, if you sign up to support the show at five bucks per episode or more, you are also eligible to join the private Facebook group for supporting listeners of this show as well. I also have some other benefits and things I'm working on to eventually add to Patreon, including some potentially for $5 donors, and then maybe adding some higher tiers on top of that where you'll get additional benefits, but those are still in the works. But anyway, without further ado, I present my conversation, along with Joshua of the Dusty Den, with the great science fiction author, Mike Resnick. Okay, so on this uh, crossover episode of the Dangerous History Podcast and the Dusty Den, we are very, very happy to be speaking to a true living legend in the world of science fiction writing, Mr. Mike Resnick. And let me just say, by way of introduction, that Mike has authored 
75 novels, over 275 stories, and three screenplays. He's also edited all kinds of publications, including magazines and anthologies. He has won five Hugo Awards from a record 37 nominations and numerous other awards, including a bunch of international awards. And let me just say that since I first came across his work probably about 10 years ago, I have been absolutely hooked, and he's become one of my favorite authors of any genre, not just sci-fi. And I've probably read around about a dozen of his novels and maybe a couple dozen of his short stories. And, you know, for most writers, that would mean I've read a good chunk of their catalog. But Mike Resnick is so prolific that I've only just scratched the surface. So anyway, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us this evening. It's my pleasure. And thanks for all the nice words. I got to say, Mike, I just was introduced to you lately. CJ and I were talking about some potential books we could do for a crossover episode. And we are interested in a lot of the same topics. And we were talking about space westerns and our and our love of those. And he was like, "Oh, you got to read Santiago: A Myth of the Far Future." You know, we, that's definitely got to be on the on the list. And I read it, and it, I loved it. Like, fell in love right away. I uh, went out and got the Outpost, and definitely got a lot of your other stuff in queue. So it's very exciting to talk to you, and I really enjoyed that book. Well, thank you very much. That, that book has been my all-time bestseller. Uh, I've had others that have won more awards, but Santiago paid a lot of bills, and it's still paying them. I think I should be able to announce within a couple of weeks that I have sold it again to the movies. That doesn't mean they're going to make one, but I sold it to the movies two or three times already, and each time it pays some bills. Yeah, yeah. I've, I had read about that in a, another interview that you had done. And uh, found that really fascinating. I think we've got a couple questions in a little bit about that process. But one of the questions I wanted to start off with, I just want to know when you first found this love of science fiction. Was it something you read or saw as a kid? Oh, yeah. I've been reading since I was, I don't know, five, six years old. And I've been reading science fiction at least since I was 10, uh, Ray Bradbury and, and a number of others, Frederick Brown, who were all popular back then, Richard Matheson. Uh, some I probably didn't understand as well as a 10-year-old uh, mm-hmm. the, as I do now, but I, I just loved it, and uh, I've been loving it for the last 65 years. Yeah, Bradbury's great. I did, uh, for my Halloween episode of my podcast, I covered all the stories in the October Country, which is one of my favorite anthologies to read that time of year but that's really cool to know that that was sort of an inspiration for you and those those great classic sci-fi short fiction authors yeah probably the biggest inspiration when i was 10 was edgar rice burroughs but i kind of outgrew that what what was it in particular about science fiction that really kind of hooked you well it it activates the imagination like nothing else and, uh, you know, eight-year-olds, ten-year-olds, we, we don't know that there's probably no life in the solar system. We don't know that uh, it's going to take a lot of work to reach the stars. We just think that's probably a little more fascinating and a little more realistic than fairy tales. And uh, anything that stimulates the imagination was always a good thing, I thought. Do you find that the genre of science fiction... And especially when you get into the pulpier sort of side of it, 
do you find that that gives you more freedom as an author to explore things that might not be as quote unquote acceptable in other genres? You have a, maybe a little more freedom. Absolutely, and it doesn't have to be pulpy. Uh, I did a uh, legitimate, not pulpy, uh, four book series about a uh, an orbiting brothel. I have done uh, a novel that actually uh, got the uh, when when they made a movie out of it, it got the producer thrown out of his country. But I did a novel about the true Messiah, the one the Jews are waiting for. Uh, <laughs> you can do an awful lot with science fiction. You can't do with the mainstream. Now, in looking at your bio, we know that you've got some extensive experience writing in the quote-unquote adult fiction field. Um, could you tell us I a little bit about your experience with that? I will never, ever reveal a single title or a single pseudonym. Well, then, we won't ask you to, but I'm just curious, like, your overall experience working in that genre and how, if in any way, it influenced your writing in sci-fi and other genres. Okay, well, the same way it influenced a number of others. I wasn't the only guy who started out there. Uh, Robert Silverberg, Barry Malsberg, uh, in the field next door, Mysteries, Donnelly Westlake, Lawrence Block, a pair of grandmasters. Uh, you learn how to write quick. Uh, I never took more than four days to do one of those books because I thought if I took a whole week, my brain had turned to putty and run out my ears. So you learn how to make deadlines. And... You learned how to differentiate character because they were all going to do the same damn thing. <laughs> you know, that's it's weird that you say that. I was watching an interview with um, Wes Craven, and I'm a, I'm a fan of horror films. And he was talking about how, I mean, he started in adult films, and it was just mm -hmm. a way of him learning the craft, learning to direct and getting behind the camera yeah. and learning the mechanics. And uh, that, that's an I interesting I think it was turn. that way for all of us. Uh, possibly accepting Andy off it, we all got out as quick as we could. <laughs> when did you know you were a good writer, like real good? I, I actually sold a short story when I was 15. I sold my first poem at 16. But un until I started writing a novel a week in the, in the sex field, I didn't know I could make a living at it. And uh, the problem with the sex field paid so well that it took me and a number of others eight, ten years to be able to get out of it to replace that income. <laughs> and in fact, I couldn't replace it as a writer right away. My wife and I had been breeding and exhibiting collies. Uh, we had a number, uh, 23 champions named just about all of them after science fiction stories. The winningest collies in the country in 1974, 6, and 9 were champions Gully Foyle, The Grey Lensman, and Paradox Law. <laughs> yeah, I saw that you used to write a, a column on that, too. Yeah, I wrote a monthly column on that. And one day I turned to Carol and said, you know, gee, if I do one, Carol's my wife, if I do one more four-day book or one, hour, one more six-hour screenplay for Herschel Gordon Lewis, I wrote for him. He was <laughs> That's awesome. voted the second worst director of all time in the Golden <laughs> Turkey Awards. Uh, if I do one more of those, my brain's going to surely come out of my ear and turn to putty. Uh, what else do we know how to do? And the only other thing we knew how to do was take care of dogs. So we looked around the country, and we bought the second biggest luxury boarding and grooming kennel in the country, which happened to be in Cincinnati, which is why I live here. We moved here, and uh, once it was going, it took about four years to turn around. They don't sell things like that when they're making money. I had a staff of... 21 young women working it, and uh, 
I was free to write what I wanted. And then I started writing science fiction. And when the writing out-earned the kennel five years in a row, we sold the kennel in 1993. And could have lived anywhere we wanted. We looked all over the country and said, hey, we like it here just fine. So I'm still in Cincinnati. That's great. Do you, do you find you prefer writing novels or short stories? What is your preference? Uh, I prefer short stories to novels, just because I have an awful lot of stories to tell, and I can tell more of them at short length. And I prefer writing humor to anything, but humor doesn't pay very many bills, so uh, humor is my reward for doing the occasional good short story or novel. Yeah, well, the the amount of humor that you manage to incorporate even to just sci-fi stories makes your writing stand out. And another thing that stands out to me about all the things I've read by you have been the way that you incorporate concepts such as myth and legend and sometimes even outright tall tales into sci-fi, which is something that I at least have not encountered very much. Well, I must say that I'm I don't write hard science. I don't even write soft science. I write limp science. I'm not concerned literarily with science at all. I'm concerned with people and with their reactions and with the effects of their actions. And uh, because of this, uh, my, my stories tend to be more emotional than scientific. You can go through my 78 books and 300 stories and find about four that depend on science. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I I don't miss it at all. <laughs> Thank you. Science. I don't either. <laughs> CJ introduced me to Santiago, like I was saying before. I mean, we both really like basically everything about it. I thought it was great. Was there well, a thank you. was there a certain inspiration for that novel in particular? Yes, it, I kind of thought you would ask, so I wrote it down here so I don't misquote it. Uh R.A. Lafferty, he's no longer alive, but he was a science fiction writer in the 60s and 70s, wrote a book called Space Chanty. And the opening paragraph, and I'm going to quote it exactly, is, Will there be a mythology of the future, they used to ask, after all has become science? Will high deeds be told in epic or only in computer code? And the second I wrote, read that, I knew I wanted to write some myths of the far future. And that's what Santiago is. In fact, uh, the subtitle is A Myth of the Far Future. It's a really great. There's, there seems to be like a certain worldview in the novel, like an admiration of individualism and freedom and sort of a cautionary tone in regards to centralized control and, and what the democracy... You can find that in a lot of my work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from what <laughs> the, the little bit that I've already started the outpost, but just... Um, like the democracy in the book sort of takes that form. Does that jive with your view on modern society? Like, is that sort of your worldview encompassed in the way you express that? Very much so. Yeah. I, I couldn't be that true to it that many times if I didn't believe uh, to some degree. And, and this might be a little personal and you don't, you don't have to answer it, but how would you describe your overall political or philosophical worldview as far as that goes? We both sort of have a anarchistic or libertarian-ish sort of view of the world, and it, it really appealed to those sensibilities for us. And I was just curious where you were coming from in that area. Well, let us say I'm a conservative libertarian. It reads like that. I mean, it, I can definitely tell you sort of celebrate well, that individual I, I grew spirit. Up in 
a typical liberal Jewish household where everybody uh, worshipped FDR. And when I was a kid, Eisenhower was the president. He couldn't pronounce six-digit words without being a little clumsy about it. And uh, I grew up being told by my parents, everybody else in my family, he was an idiot. If you were to ask me right now, the best president during my lifetime, I would have to say Eisenhower, because now that I'm, I'm out of that house and I look back at the facts, here's a guy, a guy who balanced seven budgets in eight years, gave us the interstate system, and ended the Korean War. I mean, how dumb could he be? Yeah, I have to say, I've, I've got some sympathy for him as well as a, as a historian and history teacher. He's, I, I think I would be inclined to agree with you that he's probably the least bad of all the post-World War II presidents. That's basically my politics. Uh, I could tell you which which politicians I admire and which ones I don't. But uh, that was just more what? to pique our curiosity and make sure we were, I guess, picking up what you were putting down. You know, if if I was reading it correctly with Santiago, and it just really appealed to me. It sounds like some of the sensibilities are very similar. So that's just cool to know. Well, uh, as always, my wife. Carol, who is much brighter than I, uh, is my uncredited collaborator, and she can usually point out what I'm doing wrong and fix it. When uh, I when I knew I wanted to write a, a myth of the far future, a myth, and I didn't know what kind of story to tell, she saw a movie uh, one night while I was writing. She saw it on TV and went out the next day and, and rented it. It was, uh, at the time, it was called Duck You Sucker. Now I think it's been retitled A Fistful of Dynamite, a Sergio Leone movie. <laughs> yeah. And she didn't want me to watch the whole film. There was a 40-second speech she wanted me to hear. James Coburn plays a disillusioned Irish revolutionary who's an explosive expert now working for Maximilian in Mexico. And he gives a little speech about how there was a time when he believed and truth, and justice, and IRA, and God, and nobility, now all he believes in is the dynamite. And she asked what I thought of that, and I said, I thought that was a damn powerful little speech. She said, okay, there's your hero. And sure enough, that became Sebastian Kane. One of the, the key themes that I've uh, seen in a lot of your coverage, particularly of stories that kind of deal with space and, and different planets and so on, is the theme of colonization. And you seem to be really inspired by the history of European colonization of Africa and also sort of the American frontier story with the white settlers versus uh, the American Indians. Can you talk a little bit about how you've applied that real history to sure. your fictional universe? Sure. Africa has been one of my passions. We've taken five or six long trips there, and I've managed to put more Africa into science fiction than just about anybody. I think I've done six or seven novels about it, a number of stories. And uh, the reason for this is I think Africa, if, let us put it this way, if we can colonize the stars sooner or later, I think everybody agrees that we're, we're going to meet at least one intelligent alien race, one sentient alien race. And, we're, and, and if we can reach the stars, we're going to certainly try to colonize them. Now, I think Africa offers 51 separate and distinct examples of the deleterious effects of colonization on both the colonized and the colonizers. 
And uh, I simply uh, start with that and extrapolate it into the future, into space. To say, I don't think there's ever been a successful historic example where colonization has been beneficial to either side. Sure. Absolutely. One of the beautiful things that I really liked about the book was the acknowledgement that the resistance or the revolutionaries or whatever, that they they weren't going to win. They could only slow or fend off government control from the outlying planets. And I think there's something comforting in that honesty. Uh, CJ talked about it at the end of our last show together, just how even Santiago or or, uh, Cain admitted that in the end, that we're not going to win. It's just a holding action. When you're outnumbered 50 to 1, it it would be ridiculous to expect to win. If you want to just make life a little better, hold the bad guys off a little longer, that's your triumph. Yeah, it just made it seem really genuine and believable. And I think it sets it apart from that fairy tale. Oh, you know, the the resistance wins and they take out the bad guy and, and everybody lives happily ever after. Um, and, and you just ha- you are comforted knowing at least there's some pushback against this this growing monster that's looking to colonize everything and, and impose their will on others. Yeah, and as, as it was pointed out in the book uh, a couple of times, uh, the democracy against which they're rebelling isn't evil in itself. It's what protects them from even more evil out there, more evil empires out there. But it tends to forget who it's protecting and how it has to protect them. A lot of your your novels and stories pretty clearly pull in elements of Westerns and then use them in sci-fi situations and settings. So I'm guessing you're a big fan of just straight-up Western Westerns in fiction and film? Well, of well-done ones, absolutely. Uh, sure. To me, the, one of the two or three most interesting characters in history is is Doc Holliday. And I just did a four-book Weird West, that's what they call it, a Weird West series about him. Yeah, yeah, I've, I think I've got the first uh, book of that, and I just haven't had a chance to read it yet. Uh, it's but. called the Buntline Special, and the next three have Doctor yeah. in the title, uh, Doctor and the Kid, Doctor and the Rough Rider, Doctor and the Dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah, I, I love a weird Western, so um, the Buntline Special, yeah, that's definitely the one that I've got. I have to read it. Uh, well, maybe the over kid Christmas was break. the Kid, the Rough Rider was Teddy Roosevelt, and the Dinosaurs were actually the bone wars between uh Cope and, and Marsh, the, the the two great paleontologists of the 1880s. Hmm. Definitely sounds like the kind of thing that I would enjoy. What do you think about the overall term space western, or the the subgenre of space western to describe uh, books like Santiago and the Widowmaker series? Are you a fan of that label, or do you? I am not, not a fan of that label because uh, I grew up in the pulp era, and that label tended to apply to stuff that was you know barely written or comprehensible by 12 year olds mm. I guess I, I have a more more rosy view of it just from coming along later if, you know if the term were created four years ago I'd be all in favor of it oh, okay <laughs> did you did you like the show 
Firefly? Do you think that was inspired by your work? It sure seems like it. I have never seen it. I've had a number of people write me and say, hey, you should sue them. And if, <laughs> a, if I sue them, i got to watch it. And I, I gave up watching television in 1982, television episodes. I still watch news and sports, but... I figured you know, I could continue to have my intellect insulted two and a half hours a night, or if I didn't do that, by golly, I was getting 15 hours a week of writing time. I figure I've probably written an extra 35 books because of that, and I don't feel wow. culturally deprived. Yeah, well, I definitely uh, salute you, and uh, <laughs> I wish I had the discipline. Uh, it didn't take much discipline. I think the top two shows in the air when I quit were uh, the Beverly Hillbillies and Gilligan's <laughs> Island. <laughs> well, it, I, I guess it was easier, you know, but once you get hooked on the new Netflix series, it becomes very difficult. Everything's on demand and no commercials. And yeah, well, I, I've well got a stuff. with an awful lot of science fiction on television. Or the movie. Take Star Wars. Am I the only guy in the world who says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, they want to overthrow an emperor and put a princess in charge? How does this help the voter on the street? <laughs> so I, I have a problem with a lot of those. Or, or Blade Runner? Why are they all risking their lives when they know these these uh, androids are going to keel over and die in a week? Um, I wanted to, to circle back to something you mentioned briefly towards the beginning. Sure. Uh, can, you, can you tell us a little bit more about kind of your dealings with Hollywood with Santiago, and I think Widowmaker was something else that you've had options. Sure, you got 35 or 40 hours. <laughs> uh, Hollywood, uh, well, first off, nobody there reads. Second, you meet a producer who has just spent money optioning your, your book. The first thing he does is throw his arms around you and say, Mike, Booby, I love your work. I've read a synopsis of every book you've done. <laughs> uh you sit around a conference table with these guys. I've, I've been paid to do some screenplay, so I've, I've been at those conferences. And, you know, sooner or later, one of these 800000 buck a year young Ivy League guys who are out there being executives will say something like, well, why can't one of the twins be black? <laughs> or, yeah, we could do the Catherine Hepburn story, but let's have a Catherine with Hooters. <laughs> That's, and, that's what we deal with out there. Uh, so it's just as bad as you'd imagine. Like it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I can give you a Santiago example. We're sitting around the table, me and 11 executives, and as the screenwriter, I'm the only one who didn't have uh, script approval, of course. And there's, uh, if, if you remember in the book, there is a cyborg spaceship. Yeah, oh, yeah it's one of my favorite Houston. parts, yeah. He crashed on a planet that had never seen a man before. They were shipbuilders. They turned him into a ship. It was the only way to keep him alive. They, they did the best they could with him. And he's got a very unhappy existence. He would like to end it, but he's got a directive that he can't kill himself. So he makes a deal with uh, the hero, Clank Kane. You know, I will do you this service. I will take you wherever you want to go. But when it's done, please order me to fly into a star so I can end this wretched life. And he does. And it was a beautiful scene when I wrote it. And we're sitting around the table, and the producer says, oh, I love that scene. And the director says, this is the one they'll remember me for. And the special effects guy says, I can do it. And then afternoon goes around, 11 guys love it, come to the 12th and last guy in line. And he's a marketing director. 
And he says, well, you know, we can't have that scene. If we have that scene, I can't sell two million toy ships in the stores. And 11 <laughs> guys turn to me and instantly and say, kill the scene. That's what it's like working with those guys. Jeez. Wow. We, we talked about this a little bit on our last episode about Santiago. Was the difference between sort of the creative process an author has where you have control over your work and then... Oh, you have no control. Even Tom Clancy does not own the copyright on, on his films. Right, but yeah, the you difference then... You can adapt then, your own yeah. work, write every word of the screenplay, and you don't own the copyright. Well, could you at least, for the rest of us, please just demand that they, <laughs> they make it into a movie? We want to see it so bad. It's it's just such a uh, great book. I'm hopeful, hopefully going to be able to announce it again in another month or two from a very strange very strange place, but theoretically it, it's going to get made. Although, I have to point out, they option it, and it's been under continuous options since 1989. I made more money off the options at this point than I would have made if they had made the damn movie back then. Wow. Yeah, CJ was talking uh, last time, too, about maybe it's the kind of thing for a Netflix series or something like that, like a mini series where it would be you know, you could stretch it out a little longer than, than an hour and a half, two hours, you know. That's up to whoever puts up the money. You know, my job is my, my job is done. It's my agent's job to sell it. Well, if they're listening out there. And if they hire me as a screenwriter, fine. But if they don't, I'll live with that, too. So how many screenplays total did you end up writing for it? Uh, I wrote two drafts, or two, no, about five drafts, two versions of it for Santiago. Uh, I did one for the Widowmaker for Miramax, good old Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> and I did one in collaboration with uh, Dr. Harry Kluwer, which was not science fiction. And uh, all three were paid for. None of them were made. Uh, it's very easy to stop. Uh, if, if you get the top screenwriters in the field, you might be out half a million dollars. If you decide... You're not going to go out and make sixty million at the box office. If, if that you might lose twenty or thirty million, it's easier to take a half million dollar loss and kill it now than to make the movie and really lose big. I mean, a half a million bucks—that's lunch money in Hollywood. John Carpenter once said in an interview, "A guy could make a lot of money writing movie scripts that never get made." <laughs> I always remember uh, that. Well, I didn't make a lot, but the. Two biggest checks I ever got in my my writing career were for writing The Widowmaker and writing Santiago, the the screenplays, the unmade screenplays. I would imagine that as an author, you sort of have a similar experience to us fans where if one of your books is about to actually be made into a movie, I'd imagine you you have like hope but also trepidation where – on the one hand, you you hope it it comes out you know high quality and faithful to your idea, but on the other hand, you got to be a bit scared that oh no, what if they take my book and, and and ruin it? Well, you you have certain economic interest, you know, you you don't want it to be too terrible because you want to go out and sell a million copies of your book with the movie art on the cover. They call it the key line art. But in terms of you know, is the movie any good or not? You know, I'm just selling it to them. I don't have to watch it. <laughs> People are always saying when when some new writer who do, doesn't know how these things work uh, announces he just optioned his book to uh, to Hollywood, and they all say, "Who's in it? Who's in it? 
these guys all work on play or pay for the amount your stars get paid. They don't know what they're in until five or six weeks before it shoots because they're getting paid for that time. And nobody is going to pay them until everything's in place and they have an exact starting date, usually about a year and a half after they buy the script, let alone the book. If you had to pick your favorite book that you've written or one maybe that you wish people would read first from you or you would want them to read if they were only going to read one and then you know see if they liked you as an author if it was something that they were interested in reading which one would you pick well i one of two books uh either santiago or kiranyaga which is my most award-winning book in fact it just won uh the chinese nebula uh or hugo rather last year one of those two. Now, my favorite book probably didn't sell worth a damn, but it was the most fun to write. So, actually, uh, my favorite series. I, I have a parody character called Lucifer Jones, and uh, I've done five books of his, and and those are my favorites. But they they don't begin to sell what the others do. Hmm. So I can sell humor, but I can't get rich on humor. <laughs> I'll have to check those out. That that sounds very interesting. Could you, could you tell us a little bit more about Lucifer Jones? Sure. Uh, I'll tell you how it happened. Uh, back, oh, 35 years ago, uh, I traded videotapes with a number of friends around the country. And uh, we would, uh, if somebody heard a film was coming on in Cincinnati that they didn't have in their area, I would, you know, they would call me and say, would you record this for me? And I would say, sure. And back then, everybody knew that beta, rather than VHS, was the superior system. And beta tapes were only two hours long. So somebody asked me to record a film that was an hour and 55 minutes. And I realized I was going to have to sit there and click on and off during the uh, commercials. That I couldn't just put it on and record it commercials and all because it was going to run past two hours. And uh, 15, 20 minutes into it, my wife came into the room and said, you know, you're laughing so loud. You're watching a Marx Brothers festival and you didn't tell me. And I said, no, I'm watching the silliest damn movie I ever saw. It was She with Ursula Andress, uh, based on H. Ryder Haggard's story in Africa. Mm -hmm. And I, I was talking to her, and I was saying, you know, if they could be that funny by accident, what could I do if I was trying to be that funny on purpose? And that night, I plotted out a book called Adventures about a, uh, a con man who poses as a preacher named Lucifer Jones, and travels through Africa, and uh, every, everywhere, I, he had 10 or 12 adventures, and each was a parody of an old pulp or an old B-movie story. At the end of the book, he got thrown off the continent, never to return. And it was popular enough that some people asked for more, so I did a second and a third, in which he's kicked off at the end of one, Asia, and at the end of other, Europe. And then there was a fourth one called Hazards, where he is kicked off of South America, never to come back. And the only continent left that'll have him is Australia. So I just heard in the fifth book, it came out this year, called Voyages, where he is island hopping his way to Australia and, and has so many misadventures that he is banned from 11 islands along the way. <laughs> and there's one more book to go in the series. When I get him thrown off Australia, it's done. But uh, the titles of some of the stories will give you an idea. Uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame uh, became the Clubfoot of Notre Dame. <laughs> uh, King Kong became King and Mrs. Kong. It's a very unhappy marriage. Uh, 
it was, it was just fun to do these parodies, but they don't begin to sell the way my more serious stuff does. Sure. It's also done in very subliterate English. He is not well-educated, and that doesn't translate very well. For example, Santiago has sold to 34 countries. Kiranyaga has sold to 31. Lucifer Jones has only sold to one country that wasn't English-speaking because it's so very difficult. All the humor is in, in the misuse of language, but it, it doesn't translate. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have a ritual for writing? Like, for an example, I know a very successful blogger, and whenever he sits down, he listens to the same piece of music, writes the same paragraph from his favorite author just to get the juices flowing. <laughs> or, or have you written so much that and now you can just sit down and let it rip? I just sit down and write. I, I like to play music, mostly uh, show music. Uh, my favorite composers are uh, Stephen Sondheim and the team of Tom Jones and Harvey Schmidt, but I, I got a vast library of, of theatrical music. And uh, I just sit and I start writing. Uh, you know, if other, if other writers have a spare half hour, don't watch a half hour TV show. Me, I'll come in, write a page and a half, and then go back to whatever I was doing. What advice would you give to people? trying to get their writing noticed in today's environment, like someone writing a short story or a novella, if they thought it was pretty strong, but they were like, all right, what do I do now? What avenues well, there do they are a have? couple of very, very good workshops, uh, especially for science fiction. Uh, one is called Clarion, and it's a six-week workshop, which lets you not only find out the first day or two what you're doing wrong, but sees you through all the rewrites and revisions until the thing's as good as it's going to get. And there's another one called Writers of the Future that uh, I judge every year, uh, me and a number of other writers, uh, Larry Niven, Nancy Kress, uh, Kevin J. Anderson, Eric Flint, a number of us. We uh, go out to uh, Hollywood. They fly us out to Hollywood, I should say in April, and uh, there's a huge pageant there, but uh, during the week we do workshops, and those those two groups especially turn out a, a high number of, of pretty good writers. Um, failing that, if you, if you can't join either of the groups, I mean, there, there must be a number of good writing workshops on on uh, line on the, on the internet where you, you you need feedback and it probably wouldn't hurt to get feedback from professionals rather than from other people who are having trouble selling. Um, I've noticed that you've done a lot of work collaborating with sort of newer writers that are kind of up and coming. What's what's your <laughs> yeah, experience I call them been my like? My writer that? children. Yeah. Uh, in this field, I can't pay back. You know, I'm 75 years old. Everybody who helped me is rich or dead or both. So I pay forward. And one of the ways I do it is when I find a talented young writer, I collaborate with them to get them into print. I buy from them for my either my anthologies that I edit or now I'm editing a magazine. And at conventions, I uh, take them around and introduce them to editors and to agents. And at one convention, there were about six or seven of them following me around like, like ducklings. And uh, somebody dubbed them Mike's writer children and the name stuck. And at this point, I think I have about 25 writer children picked up over the last two decades. And, uh, one of the things that makes me proudest is nine of them were nominated in the last 20 years for the Campbell award, which is for best new writer. Wow. 
and uh, I like to think I had something to do with it. Yeah, that that's really cool. Um, you mentioned your work editing uh, Galaxy's Edge and anthologies. Yeah. What's what's your experience been like doing all that? Well, Galaxy's Edge, it's still going. I We just finished our fifth year, and it, again, was conceived to help newcomers. Now, I realized that if I put all newcomers on the cover, we would have gone broke on the second issue. <laughs> so what I do is I buy four stories, four reprint stories an issue by huge names. Like the, the upcoming issue will have reprints from Orson Scott Card, Mercedes Lackey, Kids Johnson, Joe Haldeman. And we have a, uh, a regular science column by Greg Benford, a former Worldcon guest of honor, and a literary column by Robert J. Sawyer. But this allows me to run eight news stories every issue. And that's the reason I agreed to edit it. And uh, we've gotten a lot of new writers in, into print, new and newer writers into print. And uh, had we tried to do only news stories and, and not get these other names on the cover, as I say, we might have lasted two issues if we'd been lucky. As for the anthologies, that's a little different because an anthology usually runs about 20 stories. I need about 12, 14 names for the cover and for the sales staff, but that lets me buy six, seven, eight stories from new and newer writers. So I've always been able to get them in there. And I've um, edited, I think, about 40 anthologies, more than that, actually. And uh, along with editing five years' worth of Galaxy's Edge, before that I co-edited three years of Jim, Jim Bain's Universe. Uh, Eric Flint and I co-edited that one. Well, from this vantage point, being so plugged into you know, the, the field and all the, the up-and-coming new writers and everything, what are your thoughts and perceptions overall about the science fiction world today and where it seems to be headed and any, any trends that you see going on. It, it's such a broad field. Uh, the, the second you think you see a trend, somebody else goes out and proves the, that what they're doing was, was even more important. I mean, nobody could have looked at game of Thrones the first week it came out and predicted that it was going to be the best selling book in the world. Hmm. But, uh, Actually, George Martin and I were starving writers together in Chicago. I'm glad to oh, see wow. we both made it. That was, oh, 50 years ago. Anyway, um, trends, uh, they they don't stay that long. I mean, there, there was a trend in recently called cyberpunk. There there have been uh, new what we call the new wave, which was very literary. When science fiction ceased being outer space and became inner space as well. There have been trends for first person, trends for this, trends for that. Uh, wh whatever is popular and, and looks easy enough for a number of people to emulate will be a trend for about five years. But science fiction offers so many possibilities that every few years there there is a new trend that everybody thinks is going to dominate the field forever. And usually four or five years will do it. Can you think of anything that you're not seeing in, in science fiction now? Is, has there ever been something that occurred to you where you're like, man, I wish somebody was covering, you know, fill in the blank um, or, or, you know, doing such and such type of stories. Do you feel like there's any sort of like gaps out there in the field? Not really. Uh, the gaps would be uh, gaps of my perception. I mean, they, they publish 
according to Locus, the trade magazine of the field, 1,600 books a year. I can't keep up with that. I can barely wow. keep up with 30 or 40. So for me to say that they're not doing it simply means I haven't seen a copy of it. What can you tell us about kind of what you have coming up, what you're currently working on, what you sure. uh, do have that's already maybe been written but awaiting publication, that sort of thing? Yeah, uh, I have a trilogy uh, that I sold to Daw Books. They're mostly fantasy publisher. And this is the first fantasy trilogy I've done in a long time. The title of the trilogy itself is called the Dreamscape Trilogy. The one I handed in is the Master of Dreams. The one I'm working on now is the Mistress of Illusions. And in about four or five months when I hand that in, I'll be working on a third one called The Lord of Nightmares. I'm doing a collaboration with Jody Lynn Nye called Ophir. This is based on my knowledge of Africa. If you will grant only one thing, that King Solomon's mines existed, I know where they are, and I know why nobody's ever found them. And I was discussing it with Jody, and she said she would love to collaborate on that. And uh, I'm getting old enough that uh, I got too many ideas to do all myself before I die, so I invited her to collaborate with me, and we're doing that. I'm doing one with Mercedes Lackey. Uh, I don't know if it shows up in any of my bios, but I am a horse racing fanatic. I don't bet. But for 11 years, I did a weekly column on horse racing, and I've done a number of articles for the major racing publications. And uh, she's interested in racing, too, so we thought we would do a fantasy about racing called Win, Place, and Fly, and we're doing that now. And I, uh, I, Damon Runyon has always been my favorite mainstream writer, and I have a collection of about 15 stories uh, that I've written over the years about a Damon Runyon-esque bookie in a Damon Runyon-esque fantasy New York. His name is Harry the Book, and I finally uh, put enough stories together that I've sold a Harry the Book collection to uh, Ark Manor, and that'll be coming out next year. Is that enough, or should it? <laughs> Man. I mean, I'm an old guy. I, I had six books out this oh, man, year. You're, you're I, running I circles around people. Believe. <laughs> it sounds like you're running circles around, folks. It's that no TV. I, well, I love to write. Uh, <laughs> most writers hate writing, or at least hide from it. Me... I'll give up an extra couple hours of sleep every night if I'm having mm -hmm. fun at the typewriter or at the keyboard, and I always am. Do you, like, pinch yourself sometimes? Like, man, I, I started writing when I was a kid, and, and look what it's done for me and, and how successful I've been with it, and I'm still doing it, and it's you know, provided I, you a, a I, wonderful life. I've been incredibly successful, but all I care about is that you know, I've been able to pay enough bills that I keep doing it, that uh, that I didn't have to do anything else. Because this is what I love. Yeah, that's it's just fantastic. It's a great story to hear from your perspective about how you started doing it when you were younger, and it's it's just stayed with you, and you still have that love for it. You're not like burnt out after yeah. writing well, I so think it many might be stories. In the blood. My daughter is an award-winning romance and fantasy writer, and I think these days she probably outsells me. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, it's comforting to know there's somebody to take care of me in my dotage. <laughs> do you and your wife still do the um, the collies? Do you all still do that as not as no, a professional, no. but as a hobby or anything? No. Uh, if I explain why, it's going to take an extra sentence. The reason is we got tired of seeing them die. 
the explanation is if you have one dog, as most people do, he dies in 12, 13 years, it's sad, and you go out and get another one. But because we had a kennel of them, we were losing one every two or three months because we had about 25 to start with, and we just got tired of seeing old friends die. So sometime in the late 1980s, uh, we let the last of the old ones live out their lives. We sold all the younger ones to houses that could breed or show them, and we... uh, we said, uh, okay, no more graves. Well, Mike, I want to thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us. It's been really cool to have this opportunity. I've been happy to. Anytime yeah. you want to do it again, just let me know. Well, that's very gracious for you to offer that. I was really taken in by Santiago and your writing style, and I can't wait to read more of it. I know CJ has already read quite a few of your books, like he said, but I think you, you're a really special and unique writer. And your stuff's just terrific. And again, we really oh. appreciate your time. And we both know how busy you are and how disciplined you have to be to keep writing as much as you are. Well, it, it takes more discipline not to write. I love to write. If, if, if I have to go somewhere for a couple of hours, it's a real effort. <laughs> as opposed to no effort at all to sit down as soon as it's done and write another 20, 30 pages. Yeah, that's how I feel just even just writing for the podcast, like doing my my scripts and things like that. I really am sort of addicted to just writing for it and then, you know, I've got little fiction projects that I'm working on sort of just for fun and uh-huh. and I really get into it and and it's almost manic. I just have these spells where I don't want to walk away from it and I know CJ writes quite a bit as well and some of his stuff is absolutely great and it's uh, it's oh, cool to see that still alive, you know, still alive, and somebody who's written so much stuff. Well, I have I have a number of friends in the field who are also prolific, and and most of them feel the way I do that uh, it's a privilege to have enough talent to know that you're not wasting your time, and uh, that anything you want to write sooner or later somebody's going to want to read. And that's a nice feeling when you sit down to work. Yeah, well. I, w- I want to echo everything that Josh said, and, and thanks again very much for talking with us this evening. It's been great. Okay. Thank you very much for calling. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousherypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so. And you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate. And one of the best, 
most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.